0: As a kid, going to the doctor is probably your first most terrifying experience. I know some of you got your kids in the, here today, and you're saying, "Please don't do that." But meeting a stranger, and now for children, a stranger in a in a mask where all you see is their eyes, and they're asking to stick this thing in your ear. Asking to look down your throat, asking to, to poke you with needles and, and do all these things to you. That is horrifying. Let's just say it. It's terrifying. And I remember vividly as a child, there was a time as a kid where I had horrible ear infections. And I was at the doctor, it seemed like, weekly, weekly. And I remember it because we had to drive 45 minutes from Lewisburg, Tennessee to Franklin, Tennessee to go to my doctor. And and I always knew what was coming. I'm going to the doctor and this is going to be horrible. And there's going to be uh, shots and I'm going to have to take medicine. And eventually I had to go and have surgery. And I remember my mom Just trying to coax my fear because we would get in the car and it was horrible, and I'm crying, and I can only imagine what that was like for her. And she she always tried to coax my fear, reminding me of this treasure chest in the doctor's waiting room. And she would say, When you get done, remember you get to pick out a toy from the treasure chest. Now, as best I can remember, these toys were cheap and janky. It was little rings, pirate rings and paddle balls that were broken before we got home. And then she would say, and at that time there was no McDonald's in Lewisburg, Tennessee. She would say, and after that, we're going to go to McDonald's and there's the Happy Meal. And remember the toy that you get in the Happy Meal. And I I remember her just trying to tell me all of this stuff that's going to happen to you at the doctor is worth it. Because you get to go to the treasure chest. Because you get the happy meal. Well, James begins his letter in telling us that going to the doctor of suffering is needed. And one of the things that we do and we sell ourselves short of with joy, because we understand that suffering is a part of living in this world. We tell ourselves that the toys in the treasure chest of this world is what makes it all worth it. And yet today in our text, James says, no, 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 there's something far greater going on when you go to suffering, when you go through suffering that makes it worth it. But first of all, who is James? We know he is the half-brother of Jesus that was born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus. And, And we can only imagine that living with the sinless Son of God had its unique challenges. In my family, the child that is the best well-behaved is most of the time irritating to the rest of the children. My kids get frustrated with Isaac, if you just want to know who that is. But can you imagine living with the sinless Son of God? And it's probably why, we can only speculate, but it's probably why James and his siblings had a hard time believing he was the Messiah. Had a hard time following him. This is their brother claiming these things. This is their brother who we we know was sinless. Or maybe it's so that God could testify to the truth of the resurrection That James and many of his siblings did not believe in Jesus until after the cross. Until after the resurrection when Jesus presents himself to many as proof that he's back from the dead. This is when James believes in Christ, his brother, and follows him as Lord and Savior. And after believing in Jesus, James eventually becomes the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he's known as a pillar in the church. A great theologian who sorts out issues of Gentiles who are believing in the Gospel. And what must they do to be a part of the community of God? James, following his brother as Lord and Savior. Notice how he describes himself as the text continues. Verse 1, a servant of God, which means slave of God. And James is going to teach us about God in the book as he describes the Father of lights. The One who gives good gifts to His children. James says, I am a slave of God who is my Father. And notice, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means sovereign Master. Refers to the Creator who's in control of all things. Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, King. Here, James, the half-brother of Jesus, gives him the most supreme title in all of the universe. Sovereign Savior King. That's who his brother is. And notice his humility here. He doesn't say, this is James, the Lord's brother, a pillar in the church, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, writing to you. Some of you got that, but some of you may not have. He doesn't refer to any of those titles for his credibility. He says, The reason I can write to you is I am a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's my credibility. And eventually, James will prove his credibility. One who is believing the gospel, trusting in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, will be one who dies for the sake of the gospel. One who is tossed from the temple and eventually stoned for the sake of the gospel. That's who this letter comes from to us today. But notice who he writes to originally. To the twelve tribes in dispersion. Now, this was a, we notice immediately here, these are Old Testament descriptions of Israel. And this, this word dispersion, it means scattered, and it was referred to the Jewish people when they were scattered, when they were in exile, when they were in captivity, away from their home. And yet, here, James uses those terms and uses this, this title, dispersion of the church who is scattered because of persecution. He uses that same term for exile, captivity, and suffering for the church. He's writing to believers, brothers and sisters, who are scattered all over the known world because they believe the Gospel. They're suffering because they too are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians who have left their homes who have had to move from Jerusalem, who have left their family, their careers, because they are Christians. And so, what does James say to these suffering believers? What does he say to the persecuted church scattered abroad? First of all, he says, expect to suffer. Now, notice that as we will begin to look at verse 2. He doesn't say, just relax. It's all going to get better. Don't worry. It's going to get easier from here on out. No, he says, expect suffering. And he says it this way, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. And we will hear throughout the book of James this pastoral tone. He loves those whom he is writing to. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it. This is a word of commandment. It means consider. You have to consider. You have to count it all joy when you suffer in various ways. And notice he says, count it all joy. And there's all-inclusive language here in the trials, all kinds of trials. But as you endure the full brunt of suffering, as you move all the way through difficult circumstances, you've got to understand it's all for your joy. And He commands them to understand trial, tribulation, as joy here. Notice he says when you meet trials. It's not if you will meet trials. It's when this is going to happen to you. And the word for meet here is suddenly out of nowhere you're going to suffer. What he's saying is you're not going to be able to do anything about it. It's going to come upon you. Suffering. You're not going to be able to plan for it. You can't escape it. You can't run from it. You will suffer. And consider it joy. And notice he says this. When you meet trials of various kinds. Trials or testings. And and they're all kinds. He doesn't just even here refer to persecution. He says all types. All varieties of trials. That's going to be a part of your life. In this world that is broken. Because of sin. God has cursed the world with death. Which means we are restricted from all of His goodness all of the time. It's tainted by sin. There's separation between us and God because we are sinful and because we have sinned. And we have to endure suffering for that. We don't experience the full life and goodness of God all the time in this broken world. And that means that the world is dying. It is decaying. And because of that process, it's going to be hard to live in this world. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be testing. Some of that is things you can't help. The world is dying and passing away and you're going to have to endure sickness and death it's going to come upon you some of it is because of our decisions because we are sinful we make choices from a sinful heart that calls suffering for ourselves and others because of sin and death relationships are hard and difficult suffering is to be expected now one of the reasons that whole verse is hard for us to understand and it's hard for us to take in and it's, it's hard for us to want to count it all joy and obey that commandment is because for the most part, most of us in this room were not prepared to suffer in this world. There's a lot of anxiety today there's a lot of even depression that is rooted in the disappointment that this world is full of suffering. We were told you deserve to be happy. We were told you deserve everything to work out exactly the way you want it. You can be whatever you want to be and have whatever you want. We were promised those things by most of the time well-meaning people who loved us and wanted our best. And then we get out into the world and we go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is hard. This is disappointing. Not every little girl becomes Cinderella. Not every guy becomes Prince Charming or King. Not everybody lives happily ever after. And it shocks us. And we don't know what to do about it. And we even begin to think, something must be wrong with me. And my life must be abnormal. This isn't right. You know what Jesus teaches us? In this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says this world is full of pain and sorrow. Jesus himself felt the pain of agony. He had friends die. And it made him want to vomit. He hated it. In this world, you will have trouble. And if they hated me, they will hate you. That's what Jesus tells us. You can't gloss over that. You can't act like that's not a reality. That is truth. And you will never have joy until you expect Suffering. Until you understand its reality and you understand how to deal with it. The truth is, in a fallen world, life is going to be hard. And being a Christian will make it harder. Following Christ, identifying with Him in a world that hates Him will make life harder. So we're not prepared to suffer, but we also, as we read this verse, need to come to terms with the fact we really don't understand joy. Even as I say joy, some of us are beginning to think of feelings of happiness and giddiness and exhilaration. And we're thinking, how in the world can I feel those things when my world is falling apart, my heart is breaking? How can I be happy? That's not what he's talking about here. There are emotions involved with joy, components of it, but it's not the sum total of joy. Joy is a deep, abiding disposition of contentment in whatever circumstance. You are content because you know your life is not summed up in the suffering. There's something bigger going on that we're going to talk about. And true joy is expressed when it's there. There is emotion. There is contentment. There is this resolve. There is this disposition. True joy is expressed In rejoicing to God. That's where it leads to. You don't know joy until it leads you to praise God and find joy in Him. And true joy is cultivated when it's not there by rejoicing in God. Do, do, Do you understand that? When joy is there, the feelings, the understanding, the contentment, I praise God for it. Thank you, Lord, for joy. But it's cultivated when it's not there in the same way. God, I don't feel happiness, the emotions of joy right now, but I praise You because You're good. That's what joy in the midst of suffering looks like. The best way I've heard it explained is joy is the counterweight emotion on the scales of our heart in suffering. And think about this. In suffering... We never experience one sole emotion as we walk through it. There's always all kinds of emotions that we feel. We're sad. We're disappointed. We're angry. We're scared. And sometimes we feel all of those things all at once. And yet, if the heart is like a scale... And all of those emotions, sadness, fear, anger, frustration, and suffering begin to to weigh that scale down. What James says, he commands us to do this, is you as a Christian are able to take joy and balance those emotions out. And it doesn't mean those emotions of sadness, fear, anger, frustration disappear and go away. No, it means they're balanced by joy. Joy is the counterweight emotion on the scales of our heart in suffering. And that's why James King commanded here. Cancer is scary. If you've ever heard the results of the test, it scares you to death. The death of a friend can make you angry. Why did you take him away? The loss of a job. It's humiliating and frustrating. The spouse leaves. The betrayal hurts. And all of those things are real. And hear me. All of those things are right. Because you live in a fallen world where things aren't right. Right? And it would be silly, trite, and even sinful for you to walk through this world and act like those things are right. (laughs) But those emotions say, no, something's wrong. And so what James commands us to do is when you feel those emotions, when you are walking through suffering, make sure that you also put joy on the scale. Now, how in the world can you do that? Because by faith, you remember God is good and He is sovereign and He has proven it in the Gospel. And joy is amidst sadness, pain, and suffering. I count it all joy... I put the counterweight on the scale when I praise Him. Thank You, God. I am enduring the hardest thing in my life, but I know You are good, and I know the Gospel is true, and I know my sins are forgiven, and I know I am accepted in Christ, and I know I have eternity with You. Make sure you put that on the scale too. Count it all joy. One of the scariest things about suffering is to think that it has no purpose. And yet James teaches us here, no, no, suffering has a purpose and this is why you can count it all joy. It's not chaos. It's not a mistake. It's not chance. Notice what suffering does. Suffering reveals our faith. It proves our faith. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith, the proving of your faith. And notice how that's described here. For, there's purpose here. That, the reason for this. You know, you understand this purpose of suffering. And it is to test. It is to prove something. It's the same word that's described when Jesus goes out into the wilderness. And we often call this temptation. It's actually testing because what is Jesus doing out in the wilderness? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son, he's proving he is the son of God. Suffering proves your faith, what you believe. It's the same thing that happened with Job. God allows him to be proven as a righteous man in his suffering. So suffering proves, reveals our faith. What is faith? We, we kind of just described it. It is the confidence that God is good. And how do we know God is good? He's proven it in the gospel. He's proven he loves me and sending his son to die for me. He's proven that he will accept me and give me eternal life by raising him from the dead. He has forgiven me of my sins and defeated my worst enemy. He is good. But the pain of this world is going to pull that faith from you. It's like a magnet. Suffering, difficulty. Do you really believe that? Is that in your heart? Suffering is like a magnet that comes over your heart to pull that faith up. What do you believe? Do you believe these things? And we see how this works in the world. No one's faith is really a mystery. Because suffering is a reality. And we see everyone is suffering. And, and from the person in your life who would claim to be an atheist, although that's impossible, they claim to be an atheist, they prove they believe in something when they suffer. Your pagan, unbelieving, neighbor. Who you, you look over and you, there's no way they're a Christian, but they prove when they suffer, they believe in something. Thoughts, prayers, good vibes. Karma. Medicine. Government. Everybody has faith in something when they suffer. Money. Diet. That you, you prove what you believe ultimately when you suffer and everyone does it. The question for us in the book of James is when you suffer, do you prove with your life that you really believe God is good? For me, do I believe the things that I preach week after week? Well, when I suffer, do I pray? Because God has said He's good and there's no sense in running away from Him. Do I run to Him because I believe He's good and I believe He's sovereign? Do I believe that His ways are better than my ways? As I sit down and try to figure this situation out and it would be better if you did this, it would be better if you did this. Do I ultimately say, no, but God, I trust You because You're good and You're sovereign and You've proven every time and You will prove at the end of human history that You are good and You are right and I have to trust You. Suffering reveals if you really believe that. And what James is going to teach us, and this is going to be a scary book for you, we may have half the next week, is that you can't just say you believe things. He's going to say you have to live it out. And you have to live it out because this is a world cursed with sin and death. And it's going to prove if you really believe these things. When you are ostracized for Christ, do you remain faithful? Do you really believe Jesus is enough? When that relationship is awkward and there's t- tension there, when your friends begin to realize, no, no they're really going to live these things. They're one of the kooky, crazy fanatics. You don't come across them very often, but they're one of them. And they begin to pull away. Are you going to remain faithful? Or are you going to walk away from Christ? Or will He be enough? Suffering reveals our faith, but suffering also makes our faith stable. Notice verse 3. For you know that the testing or proving of your faith produces steadfastness. It grows and it cultivates steadfastness. Now, this word for steadfastness means patient endurance. Proving of your faith in suffering allows you to continually continue to endure in this world that is cursed with sin and death. But notice this faith isn't produced in suffering, it's not. It's not even really grown in suffering. It's already there if you believe the Gospel. You trust in Christ. You're following after Him. But suffering makes your faith stable and secure in steadfastness. You're able to patiently endure this world that is not your home. You're able to continue to walk forward in steadfastness. Steadfastness is produced by faith. Faith faith is like a tree that is planted. And the tree's already there. And, And you're planted and rooted in the goodness of God, in the gospel. This is what you believe. And yet steadfastness happens when you go through suffering and the roots are cultivated and grow deeper. And you don't see anything new on the surface. But you see faith... But then your faith is strengthened into steadfastness. And so when the next wind and wave of suffering comes, you are steadfast because your faith is growing beneath the surface and you are strong. You are steadfast to endure the next round of suffering, the next wave of suffering. As I was thinking about this today, I'm so blessed To be in this church and walk with folks who've been through some stuff. Because I'm not very steadfast. And I got to grow in that. And I walk on a daily basis with folks in this church who are like oaks when they suffer. You see, I get really freaked out when the Wi Fi is not working. And I begin to waver. And this is horrible. This is the worst thing in the world. What is going to happen? Oh my. And then I'm standing in a hospital with friends who are steady as they walk toward triple bypass surgery. And I look in the mirror and say, you little weak, wavering. what?" And they they pull me along. I want to be like them. I want to be like them. I get freaked out when my vacation plans don't work out. How in the world are we going to do that? Well, this is happening. We may not get to go on vacation this year. And then I'm holding the hand of someone who is planning to spend the next year in chemotherapy. (laughs) Oh, they're strong. It's because they've been through some stuff. And God has proven good over and over. And they remind me that is possible when pipes bust and collapse. And what in the world are we going to do? And then I have to sit down and talk with someone who lost their job. And they're steady. Oh, God will provide. Why are you worried about me? Hey, what does your family need? And they're steadfast because the roots of their faith are growing and they've been through some stuff. They're not freaking out about the fact their sports team lost because they've lost a spouse. And they're steady and they're steadfast. And they're all across this room and they remind folks like me that you can count in joy and suffering. When I read this verse and say, that's impossible. I have to look in the eyes of people who prove it's a reality. Who've learned it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. And they've proved Him more and more and more in front of all of us. But notice He continues, suffering matures our faith. Notice He says, let this stability have its full effect. And what He's talking about here is through the trial, remain firm, remain steadfast, in light of the... The other times that you've trusted God and He has proven good, you stay there and let it have its full effect. It's doing something here. Instead of reacting, instead of complaining, instead of walking away, you lean in, you say, God, what are you teaching me? And you let steadfastness have its full effect. Take its course. It's like a round of medicine. It's doing its work. And you have to be patient because there's something better on the other side of it. In the moment, it's painful and it hurts and you're angry and you're sad. Continue to believe God is good and steadfast, be steadfast. Notice he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The words here are full, mature, healthy, whole. There is a completion where you will be lacking nothing. And we have to stop and understand this is Christ's likeness that he's referring to here. Jesus lacks nothing. 100% God, but he's also 100% man, which means mind, heart, soul, experience, strength. He's full. He's perfect. He's righteous in every way. And what James says is when you go through suffering, that's what God's doing for you is He's making you complete like Christ. He is making you Christ-like. And we're going to talk about in James, the wisdom, the humility, the self-control, the holiness, the sacrifice of Jesus. What God is doing in suffering is He's teaching us to be like Him for the joy set before Him. He endured the cross. So God is teaching us to be like Jesus, to be complete in that way. To have gravity and fullness and health the way Jesus does in choosing suffering. Instead, we freak out in suffering. We don't know what to do. Jesus is steady and even chooses it. And that's what God is teaching us when we endure suffering. I mean, first of all, I have to understand that this Christ-likeness is a long process that requires suffering. Christ-likeness is a long process It doesn't happen in a moment. And it always requires suffering. If Jesus is the perfect human, full, complete, whole, healthy. we say, what does that look like? Well, His perfection was culminated in Him dying under the wrath of God for our sin. His fullness was expressed in death, suffering, and so if God's going to make you like him you're going to have to suffer to be like him. Being conformed into his image means to be conformed into the image that bears a cross. And one of the things James is going to teach us is this process that God is teaching us and we we encounter suffering we don't choose. We encounter suffering that sneaks up on us at times. We didn't know it was coming. But eventually, as we endure suffering and we grow steadfast, it moves from a process to a pursuit where we pursue suffering. How would you pursue suffering? By suffering for others. Sacrificing for others. James is going to tell us, you don't sit around and say, I have faith and don't serve others. You even suffer for others like Jesus. And so we move through this process and eventually, we don't even notice it at times, it becomes a pursuit just like James. who says, I'm going to believe in Jesus as my Lord. God is good. He endures suffering in Jerusalem and eventually to completion as He is killed for the faith, for the truth of the gospel. My favorite poem, and y'all know how I love poems, is by Amy Carmichael, and she says this. This is a verse. Hast thou no wound? Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can the, he have followed far? who has no wound or no scar. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to suffer because you're in a lifelong process of becoming like Jesus. And we get back to this issue of joy and how in the world would we consider it joy? Well, when we understand God is making us like Jesus, the question is, do you want to be like Jesus? Is it a joyful proposition to be more like Jesus? Then when you feel God making you like Jesus, you can step back and say, okay, there's joy in this somewhere. And we choose a lot of things that are hard and that are difficult because we know they're worth it. And we engage in things where there's going to be sacrifice and there are going to be problems and there's going to be hardship. Hardship. And yet we step back and we say, no, but the overall process is worth those things. We, we, we choose things like marriage and family and career and business, athletics, skills, planting churches, missions. We choose those things and we don't think it's all going to be happy and rosy and zippity doo all the way through. No, we know. We count at the cost. We know those things are going to be hard and difficult. But even as we talk about them, our eyes light up and we get excited about engaging in all of those things. That's what it means to have joy in knowing you are pursuing Christ and becoming like Christ. It doesn't mean it's going to be without difficulty. We have joy in choosing careers and jobs, knowing the problems and long hours it's going to take. At nights where we can't sleep because of the worry and stress. Why do we do that? Because we say the calling is worth it, and I find joy in my calling. We have joy amidst the constant hurt and reconciliation that goes on in marriage. None of us got married to another sinner thinking there's gonna be no problems here. But we know there's gonna be difficulty with one another and just living life together. And yet, I would dare say, if you've been married any length of time, you look around and you say, the hard times made it better. And you choose those things, you choose that mission, you choose that task with joy in your heart, knowing what's coming. We have joy in the dysfunction of our families. We we love our families. We find joy in our families. Why? Because we know our families are not defined by the worst moments in our families. There's more to it than the suffering. There's still joy there in the mission of family. And what about Christlikeness? The quicker and the easier, uh, easier any process takes, the more cheaper the thrill always is. It doesn't last. And the sooner we understand that, the more joy we can have in pursuing Christ, which is the most difficult thing that you will do in this world. It's the hardest thing. Following Him is going to be the hardest thing. And it's going to take the longest to make you like Christ, not to your last breath. But the promise is there's greater joy than anything in following Christ. The question is can you count it all joy? Some of us today just need to ask for that sort of wisdom. And that's what James is going to tell us next week. If today you're going, I can't do it, then you need to come back next week. Because he's going to say, Ask God for wisdom and he'll give it. He'll walk with you through suffering and show you what he's teaching if you ask him. And so some of you today just need to say, God, this sickness isn't worth it. The spouse has walked away and I don't know what to do. My company has rejected me. There's no joy in this. Could you give me the wisdom that says, I'm being made like Christ? Could you give me that joy? Some of you need to ask for that today. Instead of walking away, trust that God is good and He'll do it. Some of you are believing today that the inconvenient mess of others isn't worth it. Some of you are convinced that leaving your family, leaving your friends to to move someone else for the sake of the Gospel isn't worth it. And you need to ask for the wisdom of God that says, no, no. Count it joy that's hard, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be painful, and among sadness, disappointment, frustration, stress, you can still have the counterweight of joy. You need to ask for that today. As a child, I never imagined anything other than a toy treasure chest or a McDonald's Happy Meal could make me want to go to the doctor. And I would have been scandalized if you set me down and said, no, eventually you're going to schedule appointments to go to this place. You're going to drive yourself alone to this place. It would have made no sense as you're screaming and you're kicking and you're clawing to get out of the car as a child. And yet as an adult, you see things differently. And you understand the things that you fear the most. Suffering. God is doing what you need the most. Making you like Jesus. Jesus. And the little janky treasure chest toys that tell you in the moment everything's going to be alright, they don't last. But eternal joy in Christ does. And there's good news. If you're like me, and you're here today and say, I can't find joy in suffering. There's one who found joy in suffering for you. His name's Jesus. And He stood believing the Father was good. And he was steadfast under the wrath of God for the times that you sin and suffering. And you don't believe he's good. Jesus died for that sin. Would you believe him today?